This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We are heading into the warmer weather of spring, which means that you will be seeing more and more for sale signs up in your neighborhoods. But just how good will the housing market be over the next couple of months? We've seen interest rates start to rise, we, which means higher mortgage rates. There still seems to be issues with supply and demand. You also have the changing tax code, which will impact the real estate industry in general. With more on this, we welcome in our friend Ben Keyes, who is associate professor, excuse me, assistant professor in the School of Real Estate here at the Wharton School, as well as a faculty fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And also joining us on the phone, Richard Green, director of the Center for Real Estate at USC. And he is also a professor in the School of Public Policy, as well as in the School of Business. Ben, as always, great seeing you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Richard, great to have you back with us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. I, I mean, I think I, I, I kind of portrayed the story, Ben, fairly much right online. So what's your expectation for this season's housing market, the spring market? Yeah, I think the big question is how do home buyers react to the two big changes from the previous year, one of which is a, a much different interest rate environment. So we've seen interest rates rise quite a bit, and uh, that's going to lead to higher costs for borrowing. Uh going forward. And then the impact of the tax uh, the tax bill. And the tax bill had um, a number of key uh, changes for uh, for home buyers, which we can go into now or we can go into later. Yeah. But I think thinking about how home buyers are going to react to those two big changes is, is really going to determine um, how much activity we see in the housing market this spring. Richard? Yeah, I think it's very context dependent. Um, I think there are some markets uh, where the tax act is going to have a much bigger effect than others. I, in fact, I don't think that I know it. So, for example, in Texas, I don't imagine it will have a big impact at all. But in California, it could have a material impact. And the other thing is um, there are parts of the economy that are much more reliant on the tech sector than others, um, particularly out here in California, and are actually sensitive to how well tech companies do. And, of course, we've been seeing I, – I don't know what's been happening this morning – in the market, but we've been seeing sell-offs and tech stocks. And in the Bay Area, I think that could have a pretty pronounced impact on the housing market. So let me ask you this, Richard. For somebody that is is getting ready to buy a home here in the next few, week, few weeks, what is the expectation? And again, as you said, you know, location, as is always the old line in real estate, uh, location is very important. But what are some of the things that, that you think are important for that future home buyer right now? Well, the, the most important thing is that they don't extend themselves too much when they buy the house and that they are planning on staying in the house for a while because the thing about buying and selling houses is that by itself is expensive and it takes a while to amortize those costs. Yeah. Uh, so I would say to anybody thinking about buying a house, if you're not going to live there for at least five years, then you're better off renting. Uh, I mean, you could luck out and wind up better off owning, but from the standpoint of being financially prudent. Unless you know you want to stay in a place for a while, I wouldn't buy. And the other thing is make sure you can afford it and make sure that it's a place in a house that you really like. And if all those things are true, treat it as a consumption good, not an investment good, and buy it, enjoy it, afford it. Um, but if any of those things are not true, if you're going to move sometime soon, if it's a real stretch to buy the house, or if you don't like the house, then I I continue to rent. Ben, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, sage advice from, from Richard. I mean, the one thing I would add is the experience of the last uh, 10 years shows that, you know, people who may have moved into a house expecting to climb the property ladder quickly uh, found that that wasn't so easy to do. Yeah. And people were underwater on their mortgage, found it difficult to to move uh, out of their house. And so thinking about a, a house not as a, as a short-term uh, as a short-term option where you're going to, to move from one house to the next to the next. Um, but as Richard was saying, to take the longer view and think about um, dealing with all of those costs that, that come with buying and selling and, and spreading those out o- over a longer period of time and, and looking for a space that you could be happy in in, a, in quite a bit longer period of time if if things do shift um, and, it, and it is difficult to, to sell or you're not interested in selling, say, because interest rates have moved up even further. So all those things can push out the, the time horizon when people are doing their shopping. You mentioned the tax code and, and obviously the changes that we're going to see in terms of, of what people will be able to take advantage of in, you know, if they're buying a house in 2018 are going to be significantly different than what we saw last year, Ben. Yeah, and it's important to run the numbers when you're when you're thinking about this and, and thinking about buying a house. I think there are really three big changes that are going to affect home buyers and, and homeowners, and a few others that are that are more minor. But the three big ones. Uh, so first is really the deductibility of of state and local income and property taxes, and that's uh, as Richard was saying earlier, going to have a very differential effect in some states relative yeah. to others. And so this, the states that have the high um, high cost, uh, uh, high income tax, state income taxes, um, localities that have high property taxes, those are the places where uh, a $10,000 cap on uh, on deductibility of those taxes is really going to bind and bind sharply. And so that's really going to change uh, the benefits of um, of homeownership when we think about the way in which a lot of homeowners have, have viewed those property taxes uh, in the past is that uh, they viewed them as though they're getting uh, a discount because you're yep. able to subsequently deduct part of the cost and that's not going to be an option anymore. The other changes uh, are are going to be consequential as well. So one is uh, increasing the, the standard deduction uh, for married couples to $24,000. So a lot of homeowners who previously would have um, deducted their mortgage interest, deducted the state and local property taxes, uh, will no longer do so, right? The the standard deduction will be sufficiently high, so they won't need to itemize. And there's going to be a big shift away from itemizing. Uh, that means you can get that type of benefit regardless of whether you own or you rent. And so that shifts the, the needle a bit over towards the, the renting side. Um, and then the third factor, which is going to matter a lot in, in more expensive markets, is the change in the deductibility of mortgage interest. Yeah. And they've, the ceiling on that has been lowered from a um, million dollars of uh, mortgage uh, to a the first $750,000 of the mortgage. So in higher cost markets, that's going to be a big issue as well. So all three of those things um, shift the needle towards, towards renting rather than owning. And it's going to shift more in some markets, certainly higher cost um, and higher tax markets than others. So then what do you think all, all of those issues, Richard, do to home builders right now? I mean, obviously, we have a, a, a number of, uh, of pre-owned properties that are, that are out there for sale, even though there's a thinning market. But obviously, a lot of people look at the home builders segment and uh, whether or not they feel like it is going to be a good market moving forward. Well, as it is, we've still, I mean, we're, we're sort of back to average in terms of new construction. If you look at long-term new construction and, uh, you know, that's after nearly 10 years of being well below average. So from, there's a perspective from which we still don't have remotely enough houses in this country. Uh, Lori Goodman at the Urban Institute estimates we're about 3 million units short. So that says 
there should be an opportunity for builders to continue to build. But the problem builders are having, and and this is independent of the tax issues that Ben was talking about, is they're just finding more and more fees associated with building a new house. And those fees often just make it not feasible to build. And so you have that. The other thing is construction lending uh, is still more problematic than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago because uh, when banks are regulated, construction loans are deemed to be risky loans. And so it's more difficult, particularly for the small builders, the the non-publicly traded builders, to get access to that credit. And so even though we need a lot more houses than we have, uh, I think builders are going to continue to face constraints. Uh, We're not going to see any kind of big uptick in home building. And in fact, we're seeing markets where it's sliding a little bit again. But those fees coming at the local level, correct? Yeah, they're coming at the local level. That's right. Um, and what's happened is uh, local governments have been under fiscal stress. Yeah. Um, this, again, goes back to the financial crisis. Um, it's a little better than it was, but they have, for example, pension issues that they need to deal with. Uh, and they're looking to make that money, get that revenue any way they can. Uh, property taxes are unpopular, so they don't want to raise property taxes too much on existing homeowners. And so what they do is they use things like impact fees in order to try to raise revenue, which, again, of course, raises the cost of building, which makes building less attractive. Yeah, Ben? Just to add on to that, I think that's that's exactly the right list of things that, that home builders are worrying about. The other one is is the, the actual costs of construction. So on the one side, you have the, yeah. li- the labor costs, which yeah. um, have risen sharply and in this current sort of anti-immigration push um, from certain circles, um, that's going to make uh, it more difficult to find construction laborers. Uh, and then, in terms of materials, you know, you you you're looking at the the arguments flying around about Chinese steel and other kinds of, um, of other tariffs. That those are going to raise the cost of construction as well. So, materials in terms of in terms of steel and lumber, um, and also in terms of people, is just going to make the cost of building that much higher. So, then, what does that really mean in the short term? You think for the building sector? Uh, I, I mean, obviously, these are companies that want to be out there and and putting forth a, a wide, a large number of properties as much as they can. But seemingly, when you have so many kind of you know, data points against you, it really does make it struggle to 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 run a building company right now, does it not? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to then shift your focus to the markets where um, where there really are uh, profits to be made, where there are really high prices, and so you know those are the places where it's very difficult to build. And we've talked about the constraints in terms of zoning and other other restrictions yeah. in those kinds of markets, but the markets where there's a lot of demand and a lot of jobs, and we're seeing extremely low inventories of um, of homes listed for sale in, in a lot of those markets. And so there's a real potential there for, for builders to move in, but it means really focusing their energies on on those sort of places that are um, absolutely going to be the, the highest price um, and not necessarily um, painting as broad of a brush. So, Richard, you, you in California there, what are you seeing in terms of, of all of these factors coming together with the California market, which obviously uh, San Francisco has seen its, uh, its uh, home ownership rates, or I should say the pricing, uh, really skyrocket in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it costs more than a million. The median price of a house in San Francisco has now crossed a million dollars. Um, and uh, the southern southern part of the Bay Area, San Jose, that's true as well. Uh, the flip side of that is, again, housing construction is extremely expensive. So even with those high prices, it's hard to 
sometimes justify the cost. So uh, a home builder who does work in San Francisco recently told me that it costs him $650 a square foot to build a house in the Bay Area. And that contrasts with, you know, most of the country, it's sort of 125 150 something wow. like that. And part of it is the fees. But again, to Ben's point, part of it is labor. In the Bay Area, because construction labor can't afford to live in San Francisco, they have to commute yeah. a very long distance to be on the job. And because they have to commute a long, commute a long way, you've got to compensate them more to be willing to do it. And so all of these things sort of pile up on top of each other. But the other thing that's going on, again, is, is California is exceptionally restrictive in the new construction market. Uh, a good rule is that you should build about a house for every job and a half that's created in an economy, something like that, to keep up. We're at a rate of about seven jobs per new house. And I, I saw a really good analogy on this uh, from Matt Iglesias in, Vo- in uh, Vox. If you limited uh, car builders to build at 20% of their level, what would they do? They'd just become luxury car builders because they'd have to make all their money on margins. They couldn't do it on volume. And you see the contrast in a place like Texas where there aren't restrictions, and, and there are certainly downsides to that. But uh, builders in Texas make money on volume. They have thin margins, but they can build so many houses it's all right. Whereas here, if you don't get the margins, just doesn't make any sense as a business. So there's an element of policy here that, that at least in California and maybe in some other places, that, that probably needs to be addressed in your mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have such inappropriate zoning for the sort of cities that we have in California. I mean, here in Los Angeles, so the, the L.A. metropolitan region is one of the 20 largest in the world. Um, if you go to the downtown of any of the other 20, and stand in a tall building, it's hard to see very far because there are lots of other tall buildings. In L.A., you go downtown and go to the top of a tall building. I mean, again, in a sense, it's wonderful. You can see all the way to the ocean. Thanks to the Clean Air Act, we can actually see all the way to the ocean from downtown. <laughs> go uh, go but, back but, 20 years, you might not have been able to, but yeah, it's exactly, nice now. Exactly, but, but you see this swath of single-family houses, and, you know, they're very nice, but... They're just not the kind of housing stock that works for a city of L.A.'s magnitude. And that's zoning. Um, L.A. is zoned to hold about 4.2 million people. We have about 4 million people. Uh, If it were like any other city of its size in the world, it would be zoned to be at least twice as dense. And then you basically have freed up a lot of land that you can build on and uh, provide enough supply. But we're not there. Even worse, if you go up to the Bay Area, there's a county just south of San Francisco called San Mateo County. It's where Palo Alto is, among other things. And it's got lots of communities that have minimum one-acre lot sizes for houses. And so it's no wonder it's so expensive because these are places people want to be because the jobs are there. Yeah. And uh, local land use keeps you from building in these places. And, and the amazing thing about it is, Ben, is the fact that with all of those issues in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, it has allowed other cities to really open up. I, and I'm thinking of Austin, Texas being mm-hmm. one of them, where you've seen, obviously, the tech sector boom there over the last you know five to ten years. And obviously, you've had you know, so many people that want to go there for jobs, but it just has opened the doors for a massive amount of building in that area. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you think of the the kinds of uh, local policy mistakes that come from this type of dramatic uh, restrictive zoning policies, it creates opportunities for a lot of other cities. And so you see places like Austin, which uh, was much more flexible, and Texas more generally in terms of uh, building restrictions. You see a city like Nashville, which has really boomed in, in recent years. Um, a place like Denver, which was uh, you know viewed as as sort of an alternative in a lot of ways to as a desirable tech location and a bit easier to build there. And prices started at a much lower base in all three of those cities. So the the kinds of um, long term mistakes are, are other cities' gains. I think what what you lose from that is. You know, that we, we have a sense that there's these agglomeration effects from all these industries being near one another and right. the kinds of uh, knowledge spillovers and information sharing. It's easier to find jobs as you go from one firm to the other. Um, and all that sort of dynamic, those sort of dynamic um, multipliers that we think of associated with the tech sector, when those become spread out around the country, there's a, a question in which, you know, are we losing some of that as well? So it, it's absolutely the case that. Um, that the, the costs um, of just operating a business in in the Bay Area are so high because of where you you need your employees to locate that that's going to move a lot of other a lot of other firms elsewhere and you the, could even think of Amazon's need for a second headquarters right, yeah. Um, yeah. A, as partly being a function of that as well I mean there's other strategic reasons why they want a, a second base of operations but I think uh, partly getting away from the high cost of living um, in Seattle is another is another reason. But it, it makes you wonder what they're going to do with that second type of a, a headquarters, Richard. When you're talking about some of the cities that are on that uh, map, and, and Philadelphia is one of them, and it's not exactly in some spots the cheapest place, place to live. Obviously, if you go anywhere throughout the Northeast Corridor, it's not a, it's not a cheap place to live to begin with. Well, actually, I got to say, Philadelphia I think is the best buy in large American cities. I mean, you look at the median price of a house in Philadelphia, it's less than a third of what it is in California, and there are lots of amenities in Philadelphia, so maybe that wouldn't be such a bad place for it to go. But, you know, you hear about the other places on the list, like Washington, D.C. The thing about D.C. is, again, it's already very expensive, yeah. and, you know, the place they're talking about is out in the Dulles Corridor, which is a little less expensive, but it's still pretty expensive, and so... Uh, yeah, the cost of living there is lower than Seattle, but it's not a ton lower than Seattle. And, and I think one of the issues that they face is the places that they that have everything on their list, um, which is a certain cool factor, sort of cultural awareness, that kind of stuff, tend to be pretty expensive cities. The, the, the two places that are not so expensive are Atlanta and yeah. Dallas. Uh, and both of those places have many virtues, but in all due respect to both places, when you think coal factory, I, I don't think you would put either one. Of, I'm sure I'm going to get nasty. well, maybe <laughs> maybe a little maybe a little bit of Atlanta because you know you do have some good areas in there. But I see what you're Midtown saying. Yeah. Is very, Midtown is very nice. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but you get you know they're 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 very they make. Um, you know, people think of L.A. as a sprawl city. L.A. is about four or five times denser than Atlanta is. Don't worry, Richard. We will not give out your email address for people in Atlanta and Dallas. Don't worry about it. Uh, but it, but it does. Let's go back to the building for a second because I saw a statistic, Ben, uh, earlier uh, in the day that that talked about where we are right now in terms of new home building and where we were prior to the housing bubble in 2007. And while we haven't recovered all the way from there, we've recovered a majority. Of, of what we were. The question I have is, with some of the, 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 the points that you have both, you and Richard have both brought up, it doesn't feel like we can have an expectation 
that that level of building could go above what we were seeing right before the housing bubble in the in the near term. I mean, we're still well below where we were at the peak of the bubble in terms right. of building. Uh, and I think the, you know, a lot of these short term factors are are pushing things away from from single family home ownership right. uh, in terms of the tax code, in terms of interest rates. Um, and then I think it's just a disconnect with with where the jobs are uh, more than almost anything else. And so, uh, you know, you have a lot of demographic for- forces and economic forces that are pushing people towards towards cities. You have the baby boomers at one end who are looking to downsize. Uh, from their larger their larger homes, you're looking you're seeing millennials who want to stay in cities, uh, and so the the need for sort of the type of sprawling subdivision type uh, development uh, may be less less there. Um, that said, long term, I, I think. As Richard was saying, we're not keeping up um, in terms of the number of houses that need to be built, and um, we're we're well under that. And so I think there's still potential in, in, across a range of geographies where we're going to need to, some additional building to uh, to relieve some of these cost uh, pressures. Richard, how much uh, is the millennial factor an important piece to this? Because we've heard some stories about millennials now really thinking that they want to buy homes, whether that be in cities or if they're starting a family, maybe they're deciding to move just outside the cities into some of the suburbs well the, the crucial thing you said is if they want to start a family and, and and I think I've discussed this before on this podcast is one thing about Millennials is they're just not getting married uh, and it's particularly true of Millennials who don't have a college degree and we, we we tend to focus so much on these programs on people who are like us which are people who have college degrees that we forget that about two-thirds of people do not get a four-year degree in this country. Right. And their marriage rate is very low, that very large group. And we know that the leading predictor of whether people become homeowners is whether they get married or not. Uh, I'm waiting to see if we'll finally see a big uptick in marriage among millennials as they get into further into their 30s. We're certainly not seeing it yet. And if we're seeing depressed marriage, for years to come, then that's going to depress home ownership for years to come. Great having you with us again, Richard. Thank you very much for your time. It's always great uh, being on a program with Ben. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what about me? <laughs> am I am I good too? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm you're kidding. very good. You're, you're the host. I mean, you know, I'm complimenting you on your choice of guests. <laughs> uh, that's true. I better be good, or else I'm not going to be hosting this show. Thanks, Richard. All the best. We'll catch with you. Catch up with you again down the road. Okay, take care. You gotta gotta keep them honest, right? On this, you that's know, right. Keep it's them your on show. their toes. It's your exactly show, you right. Know, it's, we're we're just happy to be here. Ben, ben, <laughs> ben is Ben is my buddy. I see him all the time. See him in subway stations across Philadelphia. Great seeing you again, Ben. Yeah, Thank you. All the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Benjamin Keys here of the Wharton School. Richard Green of the University of Southern California joining us here on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 